0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me. This is a podcast I think you'll want to share with your friends. This is sort of a special edition because I have a special guest with me today, and we're going to be talking about the oral arguments in the Dobbs abortion case that was argued back before the United States on December the 1st. So if you have friends who are pro-life or friends who care about what's going on with the judiciary and the influence of the judiciary in our nation, our country, and the Constitution, I think I think this is going to be an episode you'll want to share with your friends. So our special guest today is Jeff Schaefer, who is the director of the Hale Institute at New St. Andrews College and an attorney. And Jeff, welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty.
1: Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks
0: for the invitation. I'm I'm glad glad you were able to join us. I wanted to just really ask you uh, what your thoughts were about the oral argument that took place in the Dobbs case, and just let you share your own thoughts without me trying to interrupt or prod you in certain directions. Just the things that as you listened, the things as you read the transcript, you came to mind that were most significant in your own mind? And with that, let me just kind of turn today's podcast over to you, Jeff.
1: Uh, very well. I, um, I suppose I could start with some positive considerations. You know, Mississippi is asking the Supreme Court to overrule Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, and that advocacy position is a welcome change from many years of litigation in which states merely sought court authorization to sustain, I don't know, marginal regulatory measures in the field of abortion um, that the states argued were consistent with Roe and Casey, thus didn't call for the overruling of those cases. Um, In Dobbs, by contrast, the state of Mississippi argued the obvious fact that Roe and Casey were egregiously wrong decisions with no basis in constitutional law, Oh, the good there, Remember, as um, Professor John Hart famously wrote shortly after the Roe ruling had come down, you know, rule, Roe is not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. Everybody knows this, so it's welcome that we are, at long last, um, having occasion to have that point force rightly stated in litigation before the Supreme Court, in which a state is actually seeking to have the court overrule Roe. So that's on the plus side of the ledger. And additionally, on the positive fo- side is the fact that um, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett event signs that they were inclined to take seriously the, the prospect of uh, voting to overrule Roe. And their votes added to those of the three reliable conservatives would seem to make up the majority necessary for a Roe and Casey reversal. Of course, time will tell. Um, but the possibility of eliminating Roe and Casey from the books is certainly encouraging. And um, if this is indeed accomplished, and we'll find that out around the end of June of next year, we expect, we will be justly grateful for that outcome. You know, the prospect of even incremental improvement in the legal protection and status for unborn children, both due to the state prohibitions on abortion that would likely be resurrected or enacted in many jurisdictions, And also the fact that constitutional case law will um, no longer classify unborn children as legitimate targets for killing with impunity um, is a welcome step in the right direction. Mm. But these are, of course, um, muted rather than unqualified points of celebration, and that's mostly because of the remaining morally dilapidated condition of much of constitutional law discourse, along with public reason more generally even when it's being employed toward improving case law standards and civic conditions and the like. So here perhaps I can arrive at some critical observations about the content of the Dobbs oral argument.
0: Now here uh, I want to stop and interject for just a moment. In this wider context, you're going to hear Jeff in just a moment refer to cases like Eisenstadt, maybe Griswold, Romer, Obergefell, and what I want to say about that is that beginning in the late 60s, the United States Supreme Court embarked upon this notion of a substantive due process whereby it began to, to think that, well, the Constitution ought to protect and prevent states from doing certain things. And that's where, in essence, the concept came about in Roe, that, well, the the states shouldn't interfere with your privacy when it comes to whether to have or not have a child. And then that developed over time into cases dealing with, as I think he may describe, whether states can have statutes about homosexual sodomy and same-sex marriage. So that's what Jeff is referring to. So with that, let's get back to his comment.
1: Uh Before doing that, though, I suppose I could mention some things about the wider context in play here. So bear with me. We are um, now in the midst of, I'd say, a full-on conflict among intellectual heavyweights who are located, loosely speaking, um, on the conservative side of the legal world. And this conflict among such persons is, in my opinion, an unsurprising development, uh, even long overdue, I think, And it's attributable in large part to the deplorable condition of the law that I mentioned a moment ago. As our uh, contemporary jurisprudential innovations relate to primordial issues and institutions of human existence, such as the life of the unborn or sex and family matters, um, they've reached an unintelligible and I'd say amoral condition. And here I'm thinking, um, as an illustrative pileup of the Supreme Court's decisions in Eisenstadt and Roe and Casey, and Romer and Lawrence, Obergefell, uh, Pavin, Bostock, as well as you know lesser known others. But when the, the slaughter of tens of millions of innocents has been facilitated and celebrated as a command of our federal Constitution. And this has been exalted to controlling prominence for nigh unto half a century. Um, When our political institutions cherish and advance this and other aspects of the sexual revolution, when the prevailing understanding of constitutional liberty of the citizens promotes rights to abortion and of sodomy, of the redefinition of civil marriage into a same-sex contract, um, the promotion of transsexual conduct of various sorts and so on, all proceeding in terms of constitutional or other forms of legal ratification, there is, as I said, an unsurprising emergence of the community that says, okay, this has now reached such a level of aberration that it is past time for us to wonder whether the prevailing approach to legal authority and interpretation is rotten, whether business as usual is even defensible. Now, there are different representatives within this community of dissent that I'm referring to, raising such questions with vastly different views as to, for instance, the integrity of the Constitution and the American experiment more broadly. But a common feature among these critics is that they, um, how would we put it, they look askance at the contemporary project of supposed procedural neutrality in constitutional law, which feigns to abjure considerations of substantive justice or moral boundaries, instead is only aiming to mechanically interpret legal texts and facilitate individual rights. And this rights business um, has worked itself out principally um, by the courts battering down historic norms and institutions in the name of individual autonomy, choice maximization, and have done so in ways I'd say bereft of moral intelligence and anthropological mm-hmm. awareness as these courts dishonor the history and the meaning of the legal sources that they handle when they're enacting these upending exploits. Mm-hmm. So getting back to Dobbs, then, thank you for your patience.
0: Yeah, no, <laughs> a,
1: um, a, a, a general impression that I came away with after listening to the oral argument <clears throat> was, I guess I would say, is to the surreal character of the hearing before the court. The the moral dullness on the surface of the discussion at the court, the absence of displayed awareness or discernment of the anthropological verities that are implicated in this abortion dispute was remarkable and disconcerting. Um, Instead, we heard used this strange dialect of anemic proceduralism of made-up case law factors.
0: No, wait, hold on. Several Your voice clicked out there. Anemic. What oh, were you saying? This We heard. This proceduralism. Sort of proceduralism. I way right? I put it, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. OK. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Sure. So, you know, several of the participants, um, notably, pretended anguish or befuddlement, uh, suggesting that the question presented in Dobbs is a difficult one. Whether the Constitution forbids states to legislate against the grisly murder of innocent human life in the womb, mo- in the womb. Mm. Or me. Yeah. The attenuation of the courtroom exchanges from the gravity of the matter that was under consideration was on display in this form of argument that was deemed proper to the occasion. Now, think about this. The court was considering the murderous holocaust of its own making in continuance. Yet the themes of the oral argument principally treated considerations like uh, the, the price of contraception relative to abortion, or whether the court should uphold its past rulings because a lot of people like them and have designed their lives around the court's elimination of state authority to restrict abortion, or whether the court will look unprincipled if it rules one way or the other on the question, thereby risking loss of institutional credibility, or whether the woman's interest in aborting is sufficiently served by a post-15 week prohibition instead of a contentious viability standard, or how a row reversal may impact women's workplace prospects if they have to contend with pregnancy and child-rearing responsibilities. All this is ghastly. When this sort of analysis marks the outer limits of acceptable argument, we can see our lamentable condition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, along these lines, I'll say, um, I was perplexed by a line of questioning that Justice Barrett pursued, pursued twice, in fact. Uh-huh. Um, here's the background, and then I'll mention her uh, mention her question. Okay.
0: Okay.
1: In, in Roe and Casey, the Supreme Court had put forth the repellent idea that a woman's interest in avoiding the burdens of maternal child rearing is part of the justification for her constitutional right to kill the child she does not want to raise. Justice Barrett's question to the attorneys for the abortion clinic and and the uh, Biden administration more or less, was this. All states now have what are called safe haven laws. Right. These are the laws that permit women who don't want to raise their children to deposit them at hospital soon after giving birth, leaving them there for the state to retrieve and then adopt out to a family. Uh, Justice Barrett asked both uh, Ms. Rickelman and Solicitor General uh, Prelogger, doesn't the drop-off option presented by safe havens laws Serve the interest of women and not having to raise their children, thus eliminating the need for abortion to accomplish that end. Now, hmm. Rickelman and Prelonger's answers aren't my concern. I'm intrigued by the question itself.
0: Yes.
1: Why would Justice Barrett trod this path? Again, not just once, but twice. So evidently, this is some sort of priority with her. But why? Roe And Casey's proposal that states can't forbid abortions because, among other reasons, women have a right and a need to be able to avoid the inconvenience of raising their child, is precisely zero grounding in or relevance to the Constitution, and this cannot viably serve as the basis for a federal prohibition on states to protect innocent human life in the womb from abortion. So why was Justice Barrett treating a woman's wish to avoid maternity responsibilities as a matter of constitutional authority? Relevant to this evaluation of Mississippi's challenge to the Roe regime, yeah. does she think the Constitution gives a right of maternity escape, and thus that there must be at least some other way for mothers to abandon their duties as mothers if states are to be constitutionally authorized to forbid abortion? I mean, does she consider the contingent fact of safe havens laws to be necessary if not sufficient? as a basis for overruling Roe and Casey? I hope not. I mean, surely she reprobates the idea of maternity escape as a trump to state laws protecting life, which is why I'm mystified by her implied ratification of this Roe and Casey idea on maternity avoidance as being a constitutionally grounded concept, or at least one that has some claim to authority over her decision in this case. lawless stipulations like this one merit denunciation and overruling not continued validation by justices of the court apply, implying that we you know need to conform to its principle. You know, I mm. hope that's clear enough but yeah. anyway enough on that. An- another incident uh during the argument that startled me was when General Stewart on behalf of the state of Mississippi in responding to the question of whether overturning Roe would place in jeopardy the authority of other Supreme Court case rulings, he volunteered that the Obergefell uh, same-sex marriage case would not be negatively impacted by a reversal of Roe because that case was one that, he said, drew clear rules, clear rules that have engendered strong reliance interest and that had not produced negative consequences.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Land take. With friends like these, who needs enemies? <laughs> um, the Obergefell case represents the repudiation of the created order, of the publicly decisive truth of male and female, in their roles in the primal institution on which all of community rests—that is, the marital family. There is an anthropological disaster contained in the policy and constitutional perversion of Obergefell. That case not only denies the features, meaning, and telos of our human nature, it symbolically represents the denial of a transcendent order of truth that binds and constrains government power in the first place. So the fallout implied in this ruling is immense. But even if we assume ex-hypophasy, that the marital family is a pointless convention that's easily replaced by same-sex contractors and that the uniform history of human civilization in all places and all times with respect to husband-wife marriage was an ignorant and pointless tradition. Still, one would think that a state solicitor general would note with concern the damage that Obergefell inflicts on state prerogatives to continue its historic, its complex, its multifaceted practice of recognizing and then protecting through law the features of the traditional family form. Well, Burgefell's claim to abolish state prerogatives to continue their historic standards of domestic relations is obviously a blow to the previously uninterrupted authority of states, but for some reason even that jurisdictional invasion was unworthy of General Stewart's discernment and comment in the Dobbs oral argument. Now, he understandably wishes to win his case and evidently thought that speaking poorly of this old Burgefell monstrosity, among others, Mm -hmm. might risk his prospects for attaining the win that he seeks in the Dobbs case. But it is just that sort of pressure to abandon principle that leaves me uneasy about these methods of advocacy.
0: And now let me interrupt uh, Jeff here again just for a moment to make sure we understand what he's saying. He's noting that the the attorney general for the state of Mississippi was unwilling to concede that – abolition of the anthropological verities, that's the word Jeff used earlier, the, the truth about what it means to be human, to be male and female, what, what it means for them to come together in a union that we call marriage. He said uh, that, that we would concede that that can have no negative consequences is disturbing. But he said, but beyond that, that we can't see that it would be disturbing to take away the jurisdiction the states have had forever over this issue is also a negative consequence. And what he's pointing out here is that the goal here isn't to reform the Constitution, it's not to begin to 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 institute or to correct or to reform or to bring back to the Constitutional's original meaning what what we believed, it is just to win a case. If I can win this case, I don't care about other cases. And to imply that other cases uh, might be put at risk, which was a great concern of Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, uh, hurts my ability to win the case. And and I want to say here, with all kindness and gentleness, this is not a way to reform or in the long-term, to win anything. It, it doesn't produce long-term results. It can't produce long-term results because, as Jeff said, it's really a, an anemic proceduralism that we're fighting over here. What does this case say? What does that case say? And how do we try to reconcile the two so that it doesn't look like we made a mistake in 1973 in Roe and in 1992 in Roe, or that we've made any mistakes in any of these other cases that Jeff rattled off a, a moment ago? That's what Jeff is talking about. Now let's pick back up with his next comments.
1: Now, an attorney assuredly can explain the unique features of individual case decisions thereby showing that one case reversal does not lead inexorably to other cases being reversed, without having to complement a case like Obergefell Mm -hmm. that is, in fact, unclear in multiple ways. It's rife with ruinous implications, and it's altogether untethered to constitutional law. So I'd say this is no way for an advocate to treat lawless court rulings. Mm -hmm. Lawless, you'll recall, is exactly how each of the four dissenting justices in Obergefell had described it. Yeah. but um, but I digress. We should get back to Dobbs. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, one more point I would register um, coming to mind here is uh, General Stewart left to unanswered the substance of Justice Sotomayor's proposal. Um, you'll remember this. She said that philosophers, medical people, theologians right. all disagree right. on when life begins, so how should this court make that resolution, or how could it? Right. And Stewart's response to this was to say that the alleged difficulty, which in fact does not exist, um, but the supposed difficulty is a reason to kick the policy resolution over to the democratic process. Let the people decide whether to continue or to halt Roe's aside regime. Yes. Now, I think it would have been valuable to address directly this proposal in Justice Sotomayor's question because she was repeating almost verbatim a component of the Roe opinion itself, Roe being the case that Mississippi right. was seeking to have reversed, right?
0: right. right. Now,
1: recall uh, that the court's opinion in Roe had stated, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins, when those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus. The judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. Now, that's Roe, and that's culpable nonsense. One does not reasonably say, as the court in Roe proffered, that, goodness, it's so hard to know whether the growing figure in the womb and constant and spectacular development counts as a life that has begun. And since no one has the answer to that difficult question, we'll just make up an unprecedented mandatory rule binding the whole nation, requiring that mothers be free to abort their unborn children without any legal interference. Mm -hmm. That was Roe v. Wade's way of, quote, not resolving when life begins. (laughs) Very nice. That whopper is beyond abiding and could have received a sterner treatment than what it was – what Solicitor General Stewart gave it at the Dobbs hearing. Um, So I would have adjusted that handling a bit. By the way, um, Justice Sotomayor also proposed that a state could not be interested in defending the life of the unborn except on religious grounds. Right. But of course
0: (laughs) –
1: and conveniently, religious grounds are disqualified for justifying state policy. Now, that convoluted thesis is a plague on our jurisprudence as well. I only flag it now because an adequate response to it would require another devoted phone call between us. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: but these sorts of things popped up in the in the process that were less than encouraging.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, I said that that last point, I think was going to be the last one I'd raise. But I'll mention one more.
0: OK. Um,
1: you remember Justice Kavanaugh seemed to be trying out some anticipatory damage control for a Roe reversal by emphasizing that states still could and most would permit abortion to take place unregulated even if the Supreme Court reversed Roe. And. That sort of outcome from a certain kind of row reversal by the Supreme Court would allow the court to posture itself as merely a procedural technician, taking no position one way or the other on whether abortion is lovely or abominable, instead only confirming that the Constitution is silent on the mm. matter and thus presents no right you know, to citizens. Right. So Justice Kavanaugh recalled press the Mississippi Solicitor General to confirm that Mississippi's argument is that The Constitution is silent and therefore neutral on the question of abortion. In other words, that the Constitution is neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion but leaves the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve in the democratic process. The um, Solicitor General Stewart, on behalf of the state of Mississippi, said, yes, that's our position, that the Constitution is agnostic on the question. Um, It's perfectly fine and probably most likely that most states will continue to permit abortion. Um, what interested me about that is there, there is this 14th Amendment equal protection clause that would seem to have at least something to say about this. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'll just mention the existence of a compelling presentation on this point in the amicus brief submitted to the court by John Finnis and Robert George, uh, making the case that the original public meaning of the equal protection clause treated unborn human persons as covered by the requirement for equal protection of the laws inclusive of those laws against murder. Yet it seems that argument is one that Mississippi and Justice Kavanaugh preferred to be set aside, um, at least for this case.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But the the 14th Amendment being set aside, what about the judicial function itself? Is it one that is uh, legitimately carried out in terms of a putative moral agnosticism? I I don't think so. there's an important discussion there, but it's a long one, so I'll just leave that one to bookmark for another day. Um, maybe I'll, I'll finish up there.
0: Well, Jeff, I, I, uh, I really appreciate your time here today, and I think for me at least a point listeners that I come away with in part as Jeff has mentioned at the top of his comments about we've sort of uh, accepted a certain way that we do things now. And in large part, I, I, I hear Jeff saying, and really when it comes down to it, we're, we're unwilling to actually advocate in such a way that we would change things and we're going to stay within the rules that we've sort of been given, even if the boundaries of the rules and the boundaries of the discussion are, are inadequate or improper or contrary to the constitution or to moral justification. And, uh, and that's, that's the thing that I think also alarmed me is, um, how do things get better if we stay within the confines that, that the modern court has given us and that modern lawyers have accepted, uh, how, how does it ever get better? But Jeff, a lot for our listeners here to chew on a lot for me to, uh, on. I'm going to go back and listen. And thank you very much for joining us today uh, on God, Law, and Liberty. And please, friends, share this with your friends. And Jeff, best wishes to you as you direct the Hale Center there at New St. Andrews College. Thank you, everybody. And we'll look thank forward you. to uh, being with you next week when we have a special podcast with Dr. George Grant, in which he's going to connect the incarnation of Christmas that we celebrate, to historical events and a present-day law and situation here in the state of Tennessee. I think you'll find it a great blessing. And until next week, that's all from God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.